why would anyone want to live anywhere else? Um, and of course, right now, there are millions of Syrians who are dreaming of returning to the homeland, even though we've seen on our television screens the piles of rubble that are going to greet them uh, if they make it back to some of the towns and villages from which they fled. Uh, none of this is surprising, of course. The pull of the homeland, whether it's your birthplace or your country of adoption, uh, the pull of the, of the homeland is very, occupies a very special place in our hearts. We're all patriots. In other words, I'm a patriot. I'm not ashamed of being a patriot. I love this place. But I think any, um, any authentic patriotism ought to be able to withstand occasional confrontations with some quite challenging facts about this society that we live in. And I absolutely uh, support what Andrew just said about the pinpoints of life. There are lots of wonderful things, transformative things happening in local communities around Australia. But the big picture for Australian society at the moment has some very grim features. Now, I don't want this to be a depressing session. Um, in fact, I've got a lot of positive things to say. But to begin, let me just quickly run through things I think we need to know about the society we live in. Uh, we used to brag, for example, about our robust parliamentary democracy. Uh, we don't brag about it so much now, partly because it isn't so robust, but a couple of years ago, the ANU did a survey in which it emerged that 75% of Australians say they are disillusioned with federal politics. Uh, not quite as bad at the state level, but federally, disenchantment is really disillusionment, is the best way to describe it. That's partly, of course, because we've been um, changing prime ministers at an unsustainable rate. Uh, I'm told that paramedics can no longer use the question, who is the Prime Minister? <laughs> if, they, if they want to check your cognitive function after a bump on the head. Um, but it, it's not just that, is it? Uh, it, it, it? And it's not just politics. Most of the institutions that we've previously regarded as kind of pillars of our society, foundations of our society, have been subject to uh, an enormous erosion of trust and respect. It's certainly true of politics. Uh, it's true of the banks. Uh, it's true of the churches. Um, there's, there's no, and it's not just a matter of the Royal Commission into Institutional Child Sexual Abuse. There are many other reasons why we've seen church attendance in Australia plummet to the point where only 8%, it's now an eccentric activity, only 8% of Australians are weekly churchgoers, about 15% once a month, about 25% at Christmas and Easter. But the perception, if you, talk, if you say religion in Australia, it depends what you mean. Uh, if you mean institutional religion, then you get the thumbs down from the community at large. If you're talking about the faith of the individual believer, then typically you get a thumbs up. People, there's a kind of faith envy uh, in Australia at the moment, but it's certainly not envy of the churchgoer. It's envy of the person of faith, whether they happen to be churchgoers or not. So politics, the banks, big business, the churches, the trade unions, mass media, uh, even professional sport. Uh, and why do, why do institutions suffer this tremendous decline? 
not just here, by the way, this is not just not an Australian phenomenon I'm describing, it's, it's very much a Western phenomenon. It is because, of course, in every culture we create institutions to do things for us collectively and collaboratively that, that, that we can't do for ourselves, um, but they operate with a kind of social license. They are there to serve us. And when we feel as though those institutions are turning their focus inward, serving their own interests, protecting their own wealth or power or position, uh, our esteem for them, understandably, uh, is eroded. So there's one sobering fact about contemporary Australia, but there are many others. Uh, for example, we are a sleep-deprived society, according to the Institute of um, Sleep Research in Adelaide. Um, we can easily imagine why we've become a sleep-deprived society. I'll talk more about the information technology revolution in a moment. Um, uh, we are a disturbingly underemployed society. Don't pay any attention to unemployment statistics. Any of you who study that kind of thing will know that by an absurd agreement between both sides of politics some years ago, um, we settled in Australia on a definition of employment as being employed for a minimum of one hour per fortnight. <laughs> so if you, ha if you have that much paid work, you count as employed. So the real uh, focus of our concern should be underemployment, the people who have some work like that, um, but not nearly as much work as they would like. And that's about two million of us who at the moment are either unemployed or underemployed. Uh, we are an overweight society. We don't have that on our own either. But for years we've liked, we've been sort of reassured by the position of America, haven't we? America is the fattest nation on earth. Uh, well, it is my melancholy duty to inform you that we are about to overtake America as the most overweight nation on earth. 60% of us are overweight, 30% of us are actually obese. Um, much more sobering than that, and I confess that the figures uh, involved in this research I'm about to quote are a bit rubbery because it's an international survey and different countries have different ways of reporting and recording these, these uh, bits of information, but the only available research on the subject tells us that Australia has the highest rate of sexual assault in the world. And not just by a little bit, but by a very significant margin. So even if you allow for the fact that different countries report these things differently, we're still top of the, of the very undesirable heap. Um, we know we're living with our highest ever level of household debt, and many people are struggling under the burden of household debt. Um, in fact, three million of us, according to ACOS, are now living in poverty. In, in a society that brags about 26 years of uninterrupted economic growth, three million living in poverty, almost a million dependent kids living in poverty. UNICEF published some global research a couple of years ago showing that in Australia, 16% of dependent children in our society do not have regular, reliable access to safe and nutritious food. Just, just pause and contemplate Australia, pro prosperous, comfortable, uh, economic, booming Australia, 16% of our kids 
do not have reliable access to safe food. Our education standards in primary and secondary schools have been in steady decline, in spite of the billions of, um, of dollars that every year federal and state governments pour into education. Uh, one reason for that, of course, is that our most disadvantaged public schools are performing so poorly because they're under-resourced and there are all sorts of other problems in those school communities that they drag the average down because we know there are many uh, high-performing Australian schools. But we have a unique situation in Australia, uh, globally. Uh, out of the money that's available for public education, which we once used to regard as the most potent symbol of the egalitarian dream in Australia, education uh, was certainly the way out of poverty uh, and disadvantage and any public school would be offering a world-class education. That used to be something we could confidently say in Australia. We can't confidently say it now. And one reason is that out of all the money available federally and, and, uh, and in the States for school education, $12 billion every year is taken out of the public purse and given to schools designed to compete with the public system. So naturally, uh, when there's a limited amount of money available, uh, the public system suffers from that extraordinary shift. Uh, and speaking of extraordinary shifts, what about our housing market? What a strangely distorted thing our housing market is. Uh, it's been created in the last several years uh, to offer great advantages to investors and to create enormous barriers, particularly to young families trying to buy into the housing market, especially in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane, um, but increasingly in other places as well. It's easing a little bit now, uh, but we've got a generation of young families who struggle to get a toehold in the housing market. We've got conservatively about 150,000 Australians who are homeless, who tonight simply do not have somewhere to call home. Yet on census night, one million Australian dwellings stood empty. So we've become a nation of surplus houses. Many of those are investment properties or holiday houses, of course. But a million, 11% uh, of the total housing stock in Australia empty on any given night, um, while we have all these other problems. We've, we've become, and of course, our houses are getting bigger. Have you noticed that as our households shrink, our houses get bigger? We've become a nation of spare rooms as well as empty houses. Uh, and of course we're dealing with increasing economic inequality. When we brag about sustained economic growth, we conveniently overlook the very unequal distribution of the benefits that flow from such economic growth. There's endless media reports, of course, about income inequality. Um, but if you look at wealth inequality, the wealth of households, the inequality in Australia now is breathtaking. The top 20% of Australian households are 100 times, 100 times richer than the bottom 20%. I'm not talking about the top 1% and the bottom 1, 20%. Uh, so 40% of all Australian households are encompassed in that rather chilling fact. Well, we could go on with this, but that's enough bad news. There are, of course, things we do like to 
um, uh, brag about and, and uh, things we're justifiably proud of. Um, chief among them, I think, is our... I, I think we're world champions at this. Our ability to create an extraordinarily harmonious society out of extraordinary diversity. Uh, as Andrew commented, our sense of what diversity really means and how diversity of every kind really enriches our culture is sharpening up recently. We're coming to think of diversity in new ways, but even if we just think of ethnic diversity, we've always been good at this. When the first fleet arrived in Sydney um, uh, in 1788, uh, on those 11 ships, 60 different nationalities were represented. We think of it as uh, shiploads of English, with perhaps a few Irish criminals thrown in. Uh, 60 nationalities were represented in the First Fleet, and they arrived on a continent in which somewhere between three and 400 indigenous nations were coexisting. So I think you could say multiculturalism, um, an acknowledgement of ethnic and cultural diversity is absolutely in our DNA, and we're so good at it that if there are, as there are, occasional outbreaks of uh, ethnic tension or racial prejudice, that makes the news. It's news because it's so unusual for our culture. And of course we can brag about how innovative we are. Uh, we are, after all, the inventors of zinc cream. What an achievement. Uh, but more than zinc cream, the stump jump plough, Wi-Fi is an Australian invention. Uh, the rotary lawnmower, of course, the hill's hoist. We're, we're good at rotary things, aren't we? Um, the, the Snowy Mountains hydroelectric, even Federation, I think, is an innovation we can be proud of. I'm not sure we could pull it off in 2019, getting the six sovereign states uh, to agree to federate. But anyway, we did it in uh, 1901. Uh, and of course, we always like to say we punch above our weight, don't we, when it comes to Nobel Prizes and Oscars and Olympic gold medals and so on. Well, we could go on all day about the, the ledger, what's terrific about us and what's not so terrific. Um, but what I want to do is now address what is really the central theme of uh, this new book, Australia Reimagined, uh, which is to identify what I think out of all of this are the two most significant facts about contemporary Australian society. Uh, and by the way, before I identify them, I should say of this also, it's not uniquely Australian. Um, this is what I'm about to describe is a Western phenomenon, um, uh, but it's certainly uh, a phenomenon here. Fact number one, we are experiencing a mental health crisis. Uh, in particular, an epidemic of anxiety. Uh, the Beyond Blue organisation report that at the moment, in any given year, two million, Australia, two million Australians are suffering uh, a diagnosable anxiety disorder and another two million or so suffering depression or some other form of mental illness. Uh, and they're saying about 40% of us will experience some episode of mental illness, mostly anxiety, uh, in our lifetime. Uh, that is, it seems to me, uh, such a huge fact about our society 
that apart from things like global warming, uh, it's really the biggest uh, thing we have to, truth we have to confront about the state of contemporary Australia. Fact, fact number one, sorry about that. I apologise to the microphone and to you. Uh, fact number two, we are a more socially fragmented society than we have ever been, which is why stories like Jimmy and the Football Club are so precious and why we want those stories to be multiplied, and I'll talk about how they might multiply in a moment. But the, but the central reality about us is not those kinds of things. The central reality about us is that we are more socially fragmented uh, than we've ever been, that our social cohesion is being put at risk, that loneliness is now a major social issue for us. In fact, you probably read the uh, report of the Australian Loneliness Report published late last year by the Australian Psychological Society and Swinburne Uni, um, which reported that a quarter of all Australians experience loneliness for more than half of every week. In other words, someone you are standing next to at the bus stop or in the supermarket checkout queue uh, has a one in four chance uh, of feeling lonely and needing you to smile and say hello. I'll return to that theme also. Uh, well, let's look at some of the factors that have produced this threat to our social cohesion and have impelled us towards uh, more social fragmentation. Um, I'll run through these quickly because we all know what they are, because we all live here. We're, we're, we're all experiencing these social changes. But before I mention them, I just want to emphasise what they do not include. They do not include the impact of immigration. They do not include the increasing ethnic diversity of our society. Those are not contributing factors to the loss of social cohesion. It's factors like these. Number one, our shrinking households, which I referred to when I was talking about the housing market. Every fourth household in Australia contains just one person. The average Australian household is 2.5 people. Our households, by the way, have been shrinking gradually for 100 years. In the last 100 years, our population has increased fivefold. The number of households in Australia has increased tenfold. So we've been creating households at twice the rate we've been growing the population. And we've got down to this point where, in fact, the Bureau of Statistics is predicting within the next decade or so, the one in four will have become one in three. Now, this is not the kind of society any of us grew up in. Imagine a society in which every third or fourth household contains just one person. Now, that person is not necessarily lonely. There are many people who live alone by choice, who'd love to go out and socialise with family and friends and work colleagues and so on. They go home, shut the door, punch the air and say, at last, I'm alone. Uh, I can eat baked beans out of a can and I can watch daytime television and no one's going to criticise me. Uh, uh, it's a symbol of freedom and independence for some people, their, their solo householder status, but not everyone. There are many people living alone who hate living alone, who've been pitchforked into aloneness by bereavement or divorce or some other relationship breakdown or by some change in their circumstances 
that has led them to find themselves living alone and hating it. Uh, I've often encountered people who've said before I, people living alone, who've said before I go out, I always turn the television on so that when I come home, I won't feel as if I'm coming home to an empty, uh, an empty house. Uh, so there's a, there's a factor that doesn't guarantee increased loneliness or social isolation, but hugely increases the risk of people in those numbers uh, feeling lonely and isolated. Um, our rate of relationship breakdown is another contributing factor to social fragmentation. Between 35 and 40 percent of contemporary marriages are ending in divorce. Uh, now, most of us grew up in a society where fewer than 10% of marriages ever ended in divorce, but we're, uh, we're joining the big league uh, of divorce rates around the Western world. Uh, among um, other relationships, not marriages, uh, the, the, the rate of breakdown is even higher. And that's, of course, hugely disruptive, not only for the couples who are splitting uh, and for their families and extended families and friendship circles, but for the neighbourhoods that they're moving in and out of. And of course, if kids are involved, for the kids, uh, which is why we now have a million dependent kids in Australia living with just one of their natural parents. And half of them, here's a thing to visualise, 500,000 kids, once a week or once a fortnight, involved in a mass migration from the home of the custodial parent to the home of the non-custodial parent for an access visit. In the early stages of those arrangements for any family, it's hugely disruptive, often emotionally distressing for the kids, the parents, um, and it's also disruptive because they're moving in and out of micro-communities uh, that they, they kind of belong to two neighbourhoods uh, or try to belong. While I'm talking about kids, one other thing that I'd add to this list um, which is not often added to the list, but our declining birth rate, I think, is a factor in social fragmentation, and I'll explain why. Um, we, we are, our birth rate now is 1.7 babies per woman, way below the replacement level, which is 2.1. Some of you are baby boomers. You were born in that 15-year period after the end of World War II when the birth rate hit 3.6 babies per woman. Well, it's less than half that now, and falling. If Western Europe is any indication of where we're heading, well, Spain, I think it's 1.1, Italy 1.3, the UK 1.4, so we might be heading into that kind of territory. But even now, we can say, relative to total population, Australia is producing the smallest generation of children we have ever produced. Now, how is that relevant to social fragmentation? Well, any of you who are parents will know when you move into a new neighbourhood, it's generally the kids who get to know each other first. They act like a kind of social lubricant at the footy uh, or on the school bus or in the playground. They get to know each other and gradually the families get to know each other and local neighbourhood networks uh, have traditionally begun through the kids. Well, uh, when we're producing such a small generation of, um, of kids, that social lubricant is in shorter supply. Uh, we, we are trying to compensate for it. As, as our birth rate declines, our rate of pet ownership goes up, uh, and we know that many dogs are required as kind of child substitutes. You know they're child substitutes because of the names they're given. Uh, uh, I recently met a dog called Ian. Um, uh, 
and even more recently, a neighbour just moved in uh, where we live in Canberra uh, with a dear little dog called Nigella. Uh, <laughs> and I was talking about this at an audience in Sydney recently, and a man came up to me after he thought I'd like to know that his dog is called Hugh. <laughs> so, so we know. Uh, we know why these dogs are there and maybe the local dog park has become the equivalent of the children's playground where the owners get to know the dogs, although you now have trouble of course trying to remember is Ian the dog or the owner? Uh, um, but maybe that's a kind of social lubricant for some people. Well let me quickly mention a few other things that we're doing that um, increase the risk of social fragmentation. We've become more mobile in two senses. We're moving house on average once every six years. That's a lot of new neighbourhoods to move into. Uh, once every, exactly the same figure as America, by the way. Uh, but we're also more mobile in the sense that we have universal car ownership. We come and go everywhere. Uh, we, we live in Dido suburbs. Someone recently said to me, D-I-D-O, drive in, drive out. Uh, that's pretty true of most of the places where we live. You wave at your neighbour's car. Uh, you assume your neighbour is driving, but it's not quite the same as stopping and saying good day on the footpath. Uh, what about our increased busyness? Here is a great social isolator. Uh, we're so we're too busy. We want to come to this. Uh, want to come to this morning thing they're having at Stirling. Oh, I'm a bit busy. Uh, why don't you come and join you three? I'm too busy. Uh, we're having a drink on Saturday. You want to join in? Oh, I'm too busy. Busyness has become a kind of social virtue, a badge people wear with pride. Who's going to admit to not being busy? In fact, we've even changed the way we greet each other. How are you going? Busy? As though... <laughs> who would admit that they're... I mean, imagine saying, no, not really. <laughs> oh, so you're over the hill, are you? You're finished. Uh, even people who've retired, there may be some retired people uh, in our midst, but very quickly learn that they have to say, I'm so busy, I don't know how I ever found time to go to work. Uh, well, busyness can, can prevent, particularly at the local neighbourhood level, can prevent the kind of uh, social interactions that keep a neighbourhood alive. And, and then, of course, there's the information technology revolution. Um, this great paradox, we have no idea where this revolution is going to take us. Um, we know where it's taken us already, but we're just really still in the very early years of a fundamental revolution in the nature of social life for the human species. Um, it, it is the great paradox, isn't it? On the one hand, it promises and delivers that we will be more connected than ever before. On the other hand, it makes it easier than ever before for us not to see each other. And the trade-off between personal interaction time and screen time is increasingly being made in favour of screen time, especially among young people, but increasingly we are a smartphone addicted society. Uh, well, let me, let me uh, stop my little list there uh, and just say, um, put all that together, all those things I've mentioned, others that you've probably thought of while I've been speaking, and you can see what the cumulative effect of changes like that are going to be. Uh, they are going to put great pressure on the stability and cohesiveness of local neighbourhoods and communities. 
And that's probably going to result, as it now seems to be resulting, in a decline in mutual trust within local neighbourhoods and communities. Um, in fact, that Australian Loneliness Report that I mentioned, published by the Psych Society and Swinburne, reported that only about 50% of Australians feel that they have neighbours they could call on in an emergency. Uh, now, that would not be literally true, but that's the perception, and that's to do with uh, social fragmentation and loss of social cohesion. The other thing that this does, of course, is it promotes, reinforces the cult of individualism, the me culture, the idea that it's all about me and that the important thing about me is my personal identity uh, rather than my identity as a person who belongs to a particular neighbourhood or community. Well, now, I said I was going to be talking about two central facts about contemporary Australia. In fact, I'm sure you've realised that what I'm really talking about is one central fact. I said we were, we were going to be talking about our epidemic of anxiety and more broadly our mental health crisis and the problem of increasing social fragmentation. They go together. If a society becomes more socially fragmented, if people experience social isolation in an increasing, uh, at an increasing rate, you can guarantee for the human species that the consequence will be mental illness and in particular episodes of anxiety. Now there are many other causes of anxiety. I'm not, I'm not diminishing uh, some of the other causes, contributing factors to anxiety like uh, relationship breakdown, job insecurity, loss of faith, addiction to IT devices, loss of contact with the natural world. There are lots of things we know increase anxiety in individuals. But when you're talking about an epidemic, it seems to me we have to look beyond those specific triggers and say, well, what's happening societally that's causing this on such a huge scale? And that's where it seems to me social fragmentation looks like the chief villain. And that's because although it seems as though the most interesting things about Andrew and me are the ways in which we're different. In fact, the most significant things about all of us is our common humanity, the ways in which we are the same. We are by nature, we belong to a species like most of the species on planet Earth uh, that are social. We, we belong together. We need each other. We are communitarians. We are cooperators by nature. We absolutely need families, groups, herds, tribes, communities of all kinds to sustain us, nurture us, uh, protect us, but even to give us this much vaunted idea of the sense of identity. People talk about who am I? You know, go, people go off on a weekend to find themselves uh, or read self-help books about how to discover who you really are. Well, don't waste your money on weekend workshops to find yourself uh, and don't look in the mirror to find yourself. If you're interested in your personal identity, look into the faces of the people who love you. Look into the faces of the people you work with. Uh, look into the faces of those you live amongst. That's who you are. Identity makes absolutely no sense 
without a social context. So even our identity depends on the sense of belonging to families, neighbourhoods, communities of various kinds. Now, a species like that, if members of a species like that are cut off from their herds, tribes, communities, etc., obviously anxiety or some other uh, form of uh, health response is likely to occur. In, in our criminal justice system, solitary confinement is the worst punishment we can think of because it is the worst punishment we can think of for a member of a social species. Now, it's easy to imagine when people are feeling more socially isolated or even a bit socially excluded. It's easy to imagine how that could lead to feelings of anxiety or depression. But recent research shows that it's not just a mental health issue. People who are socially isolated also experience a higher level of inflammation, uh, hypertension, uh, cognitive decline, uh, their immune system suffers, they are more likely to smoke, they are less likely to seek uh, health uh, care services, and they're more at risk of becoming dependent on information technology for their sense of social interaction. So when you think about all that, it's no wonder that psychologists and medical practitioners around the West, including Australia, are now saying that social isolation is emerging as a greater threat to public health than obesity is. Now, we, we've talked endlessly about the threat to public health from obesity, so now think, well, so, social isolation has worse consequences for individuals and a greater, uh, will, will place a greater burden uh, on the public health purse than obesity. Now, let me just pause for a moment and ask you to reflect on all this because it's tempting, and I, I'm always tempted by this because I'm a social researcher, it's tempting to look at all this stuff and say, isn't that interesting? Isn't this an interesting place? Isn't, aren't these trends fascinating? And I hope you do find them fascinating. I hope you do find it interesting that all these things are happening. But it's not just interesting, is it? We are not mere bystanders. We're not standing on the sidelines saying, look what's happening to Australian society or Western society. Uh, we are in there. These are our families. These are our streets. These are our apartment blocks. These are our suburbs. These are our faith communities. These are our colleges, uh, etc. In other words, social fragmentation is happening because we as citizens of the Commonwealth of Australia are living differently. Uh, it is we who have driven the divorce rate up. I've made my own modest contribution to that. Uh, it is we who have driven the birth rate down. It's we who've shrunk our households. It's we who've been trapped by the busyness uh, thing. Uh, it's we who've allowed ourselves to become addicted to our uh, uh, information technology devices or social media in particular. Uh, so we have to accept I don't mean you and you and you individually, but, but we, collectively, we are the participants in this society and we have to accept that the consequence of living differently in these ways is that social cohesion is put at risk and the health consequences that flow from that 
must therefore be acknowledged as our responsibility. This is our epidemic of anxiety. This is our mental health crisis. These consequences that flow from it are our consequences. So what are we going to do? Uh, we're not going to reverse any of these trends. The divorce rate is not going to plummet. Uh, the, the, um, our addiction to IT devices is not going to be solved overnight. We're not all going to suddenly uh, renounce busyness. Uh, all these things are happening. So what are we going to do to try and arrest, if not the trends, then the negative consequences of these trends? And in order to talk about what we might do, I want to introduce um, a, a very old-fashioned word, though it's a word that in a community of people like you who come to an event like this probably has great currency. It's the word compassion. It seems to me, and when I'm talking about compassion, I'm not talking about some kind of bleeding heart, highly emotionally charged state. Uh, when I'm talking about compassion, I'm talking about what I think is the only truly rational response to an understanding of what it actually means to belong to the human species. Once we recognize that we are by our nature social beings who need each other, that our health actually depends on the health of the neighborhoods and communities that we belong to, and that other people's health depends on our engagement with those neighbourhoods and communities, surely the absolutely logical consequence that flows from that is to say, well, the only possible way to treat other people is kindly and with respect. And that will apply most particularly when we don't like them much. <laughs> and, and very particularly when we disagree with them about religion or politics or anything else. That's the test of whether we are compassionate, but that's a test of whether we have actually embraced this deeply civilizing discipline of compassion. In fact, I think you can say it's the test of whether we are civilized human beings, uh, whether that, that we can. I, I heard someone at a function yesterday saying, when I see someone in black and gold, I know they're my friends. He was referring to the Richmond Football Club. <laughs> he said, but on the other hand, when I see someone in black and white, and dot, 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 and everyone laughed, as though the Collingwood supporters would be our natural enemy. Uh, well, for Richmond supporters to learn to be kind and respectful to Collingwood supporters is probably a good test of whether we've really understood what compassion is. Compassion, of course, is very good for us. Uh, compassion is the great antidote to anxiety. Nothing relieves your anxiety like a shift in focus from yourself to the needs of other people. Uh, nothing, uh, Gandhi said, we, we find ourselves by losing ourselves in the service of others. Uh, it's a lovely picture. Uh, and we lose our anxiety in the service of others as well. But it's not just a personal benefit. Compassion is really like the high-octane fuel that drives the machinery of social cohesion. It what make, it's what makes uh, neighbourhoods work. And I've used the word neighbourhood a lot in these remarks, and I'm about to conclude so we can have that conversation that Peter promised you. Um, 
but I think that, that it's important to emphasize the neighborhood. I think the health of any society can best be judged by the health of its local neighborhoods. The neighborhood is the true test of our compassion. The neighborhood is the one place where we have to learn to get along with people we didn't choose to live amongst. Unless you're one of those very strange people who interviewed everyone in the street before you bought or rented a house uh, or an apartment block to make sure this would be a congenial place to live. Most of us find the house or the apartment, we buy it or rent it, we move in, and then we find, hey, we're neighbours. There are all these strange people living around us, uh, and they're different from us, and some of them aren't too attractive, and they have differences of opinion about all sorts of uh, things, including how loud their music should be played or how they should raise their kids, etc. But they're neighbours, uh, and that's the test of whether we're civilised, whether we know how to be neighbours. Now, of course, we do know how to be neighbours when there's a crisis, in spite of that figure of 50% thinking that they couldn't call on their neighbours in a crisis, mostly if there's a fire or a flood or a storm or some other catastrophe, we're all out there being neighbours because we know that's what's expected of us, simply because we are members of this neighbourhood. What a tragedy it would be if we became the kind of neighbourhoods where compassion, kindness, respect, looking out for each other was only something that we were galvanised to do by some kind of catastrophe. Now let me, let me conclude by um, telling you a brief story about a town in Somerset in the UK, a town called Froome. Some of you may have been there, some of you may even come from Froome. It's spelled, if you want to look it up on the, on the net, it's F -R, spelled F-R-O-M-E, but pronounced Froome. Um, a GP in Froome about five years ago came to realise something that I've been talking about this morning also, uh, namely that particularly among her elderly patients, people who were suffering from anxiety disorders were often also people experiencing social isolation. And she realised the importance of that link. She got together with some other medical professionals in Froome and some community leaders various kinds, and together they launched something that sounds so clunky you'd never think it could work, uh, but they launched the Compassionate Froome Project. <laughs> now, the Compassionate Froome Project has been the subject of quite intense scrutiny by social scientists, and by the way, it's coming to Australia. I think there are 12 towns around Australia that are about to be um, subjected to this compassionate town uh, strategy. Um, the results over a three-year period were spectacular. Um, just about all health indicators across Froome went changed in a positive direction. The most dramatic and unexpected of those indicators was the rate of emergency admissions to hospital, uh, which went down over those three years by 17%, while across Somerset, emergency admissions went up by 29%. And a palliative care physician in Froome said, this is the first intervention we've ever had that resulted in an actual drop in emergency admissions to hospital, as well as, of course, many other, as I've indicated, uh, positive health indicators. So what was this brilliant, compassionate Froome project. What, what stra the strategy was so clever 
uh, you would never be able to think of it uh, unless I revealed it to you. Uh, it included the promotion of ideas like get to know your neighbours, never pass someone in the street without smiling and saying hello, get engaged in local activities, join a church, join a choir, join a community garden, join a book club, uh, join U3A, go to events at the local library, etc. Get engaged, get involved in the local community so you become aware of needs that exist in the local community. Uh, essentially what they were saying was become a member rather than an isolated individual and be particularly alert to people in your street uh, who seem as if they are most at risk of social isolation. Well, it worked in Froome. It can work in Mulgrave. It can work anywhere. Uh, and let's not even think of big things like suburbs or towns. Let's think about your street. It's very easy, particularly in the light of some of the data I've presented this morning, it's very easy to wring our hands about the state of the nation or even the state of the world, but especially the state of the nation. Oh, society's going to the dogs, etc. Not so easy to accept the fact that the state of the nation actually starts in your street. It's how we live, it's how we interact with neighbours that actually determines the nature of our society. If enough of us dream, I'm sure you dream of a kinder, more compassionate, more equitable society. Well, if enough of us start acting as if it is that kind of society, that's the kind of society it will soon become. Thank you.